0: This conference will now be recorded. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Christoph. Christoph, thank you for taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Uh, too kind. Great to have you on the show. Um, at the at the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask guests uh, what what was it about data or data science that that appealed to you? What was it that brought you into the space in, in the first place?
1: It kind of started for me after high school so I was thinking like what, what should I do and it was for me clear that I uh, want to study and I actually didn't go into the, like data or statistics uh, data science in the beginning but started with electrical engineering uh, one semester and I wasn't happy with it so then came another semester of Uh, pharmacy also wasn't too happy and then I thought like okay what do you want to like really study and my issue or my my problem was that I didn't want to decide at the beginning of my studies in in what sector or or what type of industry I want to work in later so I was kind of looking for something that gives me an opportunity to work or or to to decide later kind of and Uh. And it was clear to me that I wanted to do something with math. So then I looked into uh, statistics and the more I looked into it and the the more I liked it because it's kind of a toolbox that you learn there and you still don't have to decide where you want to work afterwards because you can work (laughs) in medicine and insurance or wherever you want to work. And yeah, the first time I heard about statistics, it was like, it sounded boring, but the the more I learned about it um, the more I liked it and also started then studying it and finally also finished uh, my studies uh, yeah so this was for me the beginning um, how, how I got into the field and yeah since then I didn't regret my decision
0: <laughs> good bad and um what when you were when you were studying statistics uh what what was it in the in the early days that you particularly enjoyed?
1: What, what I liked in general about the statistics, so I studied statistics in Munich, yes. was that it was very applied. So like in the um, second or third semester, we already started uh, learning um, like R and doing some smaller analysis. So for example, in the third semester also we had a project where we had to give a presentation in the end, uh, worked with real data, and this really got me hooked, this uh, immediate contact with problems to work on, So you immediately see like the things that you learn that you can apply them and use them. So in the beginning was obviously some simple stuff like descriptive statistics, creating figures, plots for, for the presentations, but later on, we also worked on, on bigger projects and this was really fun for me to have this application early in the beginning already
0: definitely and what, what was your one of your favorite uh, projects or, or problems that you got to work on in in those early days
1: for example in my masters we have this course which is called consulting uh, the concept is that you have a project partner who has a uh, can be a company or a researcher who has a, kind of a data set and a question and then you collaborate with the project partner to to answer the question using some data analysis. And I had data from a, an online game. And the question was, so this was an online game where you could build uh, big teams or like plants or something. And the question was, and this could be like, I don't know, three to I don't know, 60 players or so. And the question was, what, what did you have to do to gain power or status in this team? And so I got data from a from this online game and could analyze like what what influences whether you will gain status or power in this team. And we did also a comparison across many countries because this game was played in, in different countries and did a comparison if there's different effects, for example. Whether you trade a lot, uh, a lot of resources within your team. Uh, so the goal was there's of course like a big map, and and you have resources you could mine and you could attack other uh, uh, teams. And one one like the factors we looked at were, for example, how much you traded within your team, how much you uh, su- supported them in when you were fighting against other teams. And how these factors influence whether you gain status or power in a team, and, and how these factors are different between different countries. Uh, this was a really fun, fun project. Um, the first project also had like a bigger data, I would say, um, like a few gigabytes. Um, yeah, this was one of the more, more memorable projects.
0: That's awesome. That would have been such, such interesting. Uh, study to get into, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did did you end up applying any of the findings yourself?
1: <laughs> no, um, not um, like uh, in, in the team. How to uh, how I gained power or status? No, not really. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think <laughs> um, the yeah the yeah, setting no, was very like uh, um, artificial, kind of. In I, I mean, o- obviously the research question was also like, maybe if it's whether it applies also in other kind of teams, like in companies, but of course, like the, as a, I have to say as a good statistician, like the analysis is a, well, for the setting of the game, first of all, and then if you want to draw other conclusions, you have to support it with, with other arguments, yeah, whether it applies to yeah. companies, for example. for example. man yeah
0: that's that's good and and how what has your your career looked like since uh since the the masters
1: yeah first i want to still stay a little bit in my studies um because i actually um so i already started working during my studies so there's the statistical consulting unit um and at the at the university where I worked really early on and this was really valuable for me because I got in contact with so many different research projects. So the idea of this consulting unit was that uh, researchers but also companies could come with the data and uh, the problem and ask um, for help. And Mm -hmm. we we always coupled like a student and one more senior researcher and they both helped one of the clients and they got in contact with like lots and lots of projects. So I think this really helped me a lot in like getting a good start already with my uh, data science career, I would say.
0: And so why, for example- why, why did it give you a
1: good start? Because we, I just got us such a great sample of different uh, projects to work on. So it, it it starts with like smaller data sets were the, from researchers, I think there was one Um, who studied whether you should, like when a cow gets pregnant and they usually like you stop um, um, milking it, so that that it remains healthy. Um, But she asked like whether maybe it makes sense to even during pregnancy to to still milk a cow, maybe it's better and they measured like the the fat of the, the cow at the back and stuff like this to answer the research question. Uh, and another project was completely different, for example, where we built a rent index for a small city in Germany. So this, where we predict the average rent for, um, for based on how big the flat, flat or house is, where it's located, uh, what year it was building, uh, built in, what kind of heating it has, and so on, which is then officially used in for For citizens so they can use this tool in the end and ask like, "Am I paying too much rent or if you're a landlord am i like um c- can i uh ask for more money and uh, even got like uh, in into the newspaper like just a very small local newspaper but it was kind of a fun project. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Then your question was for what I did after my studies.
0: But so that's that's um, great. That's great to be to be applying from you know from online games to yeah. uh, to uh, you know cows in agriculture then to rents. Um, yeah, and,
1: and that also match my kind of uh, like my well, what I wanted in the beginning that to play on different fields and don't have to decide that I only want to work on projects or I don't know, rent index or something. So I'm still in the position where I can say, hey, you can, I have just this very general toolbox which can be applied in, in many different industries or uh, research fields also. And the cool thing is that you always, I mean, you go there and then you're kind of naive because you don't know much about the, the field, but you get to work with you later, you have to ask a lot of questions and you get to learn a bit about that field, and I think it's very exciting.
0: Really exciting. And what was um, what what did you learn from the from the senior uh, researchers that you were working with? Because I assume in this mm-hmm. case you were the the junior one in the in the pair that yeah. went to a company. Yes. Uh, what 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 type of things did you learn from the seniors?
1: That was very interesting. So the structure was always that we if you wanted, as a client, if you wanted some consulting, you would submit a form where you describe your problem. Sometimes, so, and then we get this, and, and uh, in the team meeting, which dis- they get this distributed to the projects, And then we had a first meeting with, with the, the client, uh, one senior um, researcher and one student. And discuss what they really want because sometimes you could read it from the form but sometimes you couldn't uh, understand what they like really want so what what the research research question is and so on uh-huh. and then we had this first meeting and then um, it was uh, super interesting to see like if you have a really experienced res- experienced researcher they listen to it and and like immediately understand or could extract like from a few sentences what they are really after, like like some kind of pattern matching to understand what they really need, what kind of analysis they want or need, and which I I couldn't do of course with my limited experience, but I saw that they with a lot of experience have this pattern matching uh, mechanic in their head uh, where they just see or, or could deduct what kind of uh, problem they have. This, yeah, this was my, you know.
0: And, and were they able to provide any insights into how they develop that in a, in a conscious way, or was it purely from, from exposure to lots of projects?
1: So I never asked. So my, my theory is that it's, it's exposure to a lot of projects and also like the, the implicit flow or the flow between if you're a senior researcher and and you're a couple uh, and and, or if you start as a student and and a lot of lots of projects and you have always the senior researcher then you just learn a lot like implicitly just by being in the same meeting and and seeing how how they come to the conclusion but but i think yeah it's mostly the also the exposure to many many different projects
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That that makes excellent sense. And do you think that that's a that's a good a good program for for students? Um, well, I guess for students, maybe universities and and companies. Do you see something where everyone was benefiting through the process?
1: Uh, yes, I think so. So uh, it's so for me as a student, it was extremely beneficial because I learned so much. Uh, so much I, I couldn't have learned in another way because uh, I'm, I, I started in my third bachelor semester, which was kind of early. Uh, no, at uh, um, year uh, no semester four, I think. But still, it was kind of early because I didn't know enough already. So I started with the very simple projects, um, but but it was really important for me to to be there because I learned so much. Um, but it's also very beneficial for for the other like for the clients of course so for example the because it was a unit in the university it was set up in such a way that it was free for other researchers from the same university so i think they got like nine hours of consulting for free and so this is of course very valuable for them because this these are were mostly for example master students who came from a different field maybe sociology or so, who had just a little bit of statistics, and then they are confronted with maybe a more difficult analysis or, or data project in their master thesis, or maybe also in their PhD. And then they are kind of struggling how to how to continue with their, their project. And then they can just go to the, the statistical consulting unit at the university and ask for help. And so and what we provided was more um, kind of us help for, so they can help themselves. So we just gave them hints or tell them like what software they could use, what type of model would be meaningful or what type of analysis would be meaningful there. Um, But there were also bigger projects with companies and yeah, I guess that uh, I hope it was also helpful for them. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, but I, I think so, yeah.
0: That sounds awesome. That sounds like a great, yeah, really great experience yeah, yeah. And, and and yeah maybe a good a good model to adopt for other people because it sounds really excellent
1: mhm yeah boss
0: that's that's good and then and from from there what what um what did you go into next
1: yeah afterwards um i so i was in munich for my whole life so i decided uh, it's time to go someplace else and my uh, So we started, my girlfriend and I, we started looking for other places to go, and she applied to a PhD program in Zurich, so then we went to Zurich, and I started looking for jobs there, and then I ended up at a fintech startup um, with a role as a junior data scientist, and where I worked for a year, and then afterwards, two years for in a more classical Statistician job at, in the medical industry again switching industries kind ca- uh, quite a lot and now I'm good. doing and afterwards we went back to Munich where I'm doing my PhD currently
0: very nice very nice and what what were the, what were the the types of problems that you worked on at the at the fintech or um yeah that that one first actually
1: mm-hmm. so um I can't go much into details, but the general um, things I worked on was, so this is a a startup uh, which works on providing a a banking app. So for personal use where you can connect your bank accounts and just have an overview of all your accounts and use it like you would use your banking app. Um, But it's, well, you could like connect multiple accounts and so on. And as I said, I worked there as a data scientist. So I kind of had, I would say two roles. One was working on like features for the app. For example, one of the features is that like financial transactions are automatically classified into different categories. That's a project I worked on. And the the other type of projects I worked on were more like these ad hoc uh, analysis, like uh, I don't know how many users we have and things like this. So and I also I found this distinction between the two very interesting because they require a very different set of collaboration I would say so um, because for this first type you have to oh, oh, let's say the, the, the easier part is if you have like these ad hoc analyses and you want so the the end project product is maybe like this a few numbers or a chart and then you can provide this. But if you build something that should be part of the product, you always have to think about, okay, how do we integrate it into the product? Um, you have to work closely together with uh, engineers who then implement it, or so. And yeah, so uh, I think this is a very uh, interesting uh, k- to kind of have these two problems where you apply uh, maybe similar methods, but um, the the process is very different.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that, um, interesting to, or great to have the experience of, of working on both sides. What, what would, what did you, uh, learn or what skills did you develop while in your, in your time at that company?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think I benefited a lot from having contact with lots and lots of software engineers. So I think it greatly improved my, like my skill set and my views on software engineering. So, Uh, really solidified my use of uh, version control, um, made me more um, like better in writing unit tests and just discovering lots of tools. Uh, It's it's just these little things like um, when I use Git now, it's just a few commands that I learned from software engineers, which I wouldn't have discovered on my own and just looking at things through the software engineering lens because my my education was statistics where we do have a little bit of software, but it's not too, too much. So I gained a lot from um, working with the engineers who have a very different education, but I think like you need these both components for, if you want to be a data scientist. So this was uh, really beneficial for me.
0: Really good. Really, really good. Um, that's good. That's, that's excellent. And then moving into the the I guess uh, you said more more traditional statistical consultant. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that role
1: like So the second job was uh, for in medical research. And it was a very small foundation, I think, like 12 people or so, but with a very good portion of uh, statisticians. So I think we were like five statistician or so. And I also had multiple hats on because it's such a small uh, organization. One was obviously the doing a status, like work of a statistician, which included writing papers together with a um, rheumatologist. And the the other jobs were more like um, because we could also collect the data, so we had uh, or they they have a an online tool where they collect um, patient data and also from doctors for patients with uh, rheumatic diseases. And that's also the data we ended up analyzing. And one of my jobs was also to, um, help with continued development of the database or like the, the web interface. So I didn't work directly on like programming it, but working through the like being the link to the, uh, IT company that did the development on, on the online database yeah so this yeah. this job was more yeah traditional because it didn't use any like machine learning or so but because it's medical research there that's kind of uh, well more like the linear models and stuff like this which you would use for for doing the analysis
0: that makes sense and and what what type of analysis were you doing
1: yeah so we had um data from um from patients with uh, not sure about the english word i think it's uh, spondylo arthritis so uh, um, yes. one one thing that can happen if you have this disease for a long time that you that um, your um, ah, i forgot the word um like your spine yeah that you that you kind of grow additional bone between your uh, spine so and yes. which in the end um can yield like that, or oh, can, okay, can I start again? <laughs> Just, uh... of course.
0: Well, we'll cut, we'll cut that bit out. So Don't, yeah. don't worry.
1: So the type of analysis I did, there was, uh, we had patients with spondyl arthritis, and these, these patients, or, or what can happen with this disease, if you have it for a long time, that you, you there's between the spine joints that you kind of, Grow extra dry, uh, extra bone, and which renders the spine less well. You, you can cannot bend it much, and and can run it like that. You cannot move it uh, and not much. and Yes. Uh, we kind of analyzed uh, medication which is known to to help with the disease. So it lowers your inflammation, so, which is also the source, probably why why your spine um, grows this extra bone and the research question one was does this medication also help against the the bone growth the bone growth in the spine and we did like a, like predictive modeling for oh, like a, like a um, generalized additive model for whether the spine uh, is also affected by by the medication So this was kind of the the analysis we did.
0: That's great. And and did you enjoy doing that work?
1: Yes, it was very interesting and very different from from my other jobs. So the the data we had is from this database and well, a lot of time was spent on um, kind of filtering the correct patients um, because we needed to detect whether there's like a progression in the spine, uh, with like additional bone growth, the, we had to have x-rays which were, um, which were labeled by specialists. So, because they had had to give, had to look at each of the joints and say, uh, like give a number between zero and three, how much additional bone there is, or maybe there's none. And so we were limited by who has an X-ray, then we needed uh, at least a, a, a certain amount of time points where the patients had to be at the doctors. Um, so, because this is like an observational study, so this, this makes, makes the analysis so much harder and you have to think about so many things. Like if you, uh, maybe exclude some patients that you shouldn't exclude and how like causally you can do the interpretation and which variables you are not allowed to include from certain time points, and how long you can or should wait before you can expect uh, the medication to work. So these, like a lot of little questions which takes on a long time to to get the analysis right. This was a very uh, interesting experience. Um, Also another thing is, Another thing is that sometimes the um the database like the questionnaires change, so maybe there's a new questionnaire which replaces an old one, and then you have to be careful to reflect this so then you you do some kind of mapping uh, for for your data that that they well it's kind of consistent for your model so yeah very difficult work
0: indeed and how how many people were helping you with, with, uh, labeling data?
1: So, uh, fortunately this, this, uh, was already labeled, uh, when I came there. I so I think, so this was outsourced and, um, I think there were, yeah, um, oh, there were two people labeling the data, um, to, to external experts. And yeah, this is also, yeah, kind of, you know, you would, oh, like, naively you would think, ah, oh, yeah, they, they experts label it and then it's perfect. But of course it isn't. So we also looked at things like um, how much would be. Uh, so we had some overlap um, between. Oh, so no, actually both both labelers labeled all of the images. So we could do some analysis how how good the agreement is. And it's of course it's not perfect because some uh, sometimes they have like a complete different uh, interpretation of the results. So one might say, oh, it's completely like um, bone. The other would say no, it's uh, from a different disease, some, something. So it's like a zero on the other hand, like the maximum count almost. Or do you have some slight differences between the the labelers, and you have to kind of get get a good, uh, um, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, we reported, of course, how much they agreed, and but I also have to think about like uh, how, yeah, how, how good is the data then in the end, yeah. You know? But that's a really difficult issue these uh labeling so as I found out when when working closer with this,
0: oh yeah yeah no i've I've definitely had um a a fair number of of um of traumatic experiences with <laughs> with uh the data that gets that gets labeled manually and yeah sometimes um Sometimes by experts, sometimes not, and and there's always um, issues. So the fact that you had that it was they um, labeled by multiple people and that they were experts, I think that's uh, that's a really good really good um, way to do yeah. it. do you have any other recommendations on on uh, labeling data?
1: Yeah, so I think um, for for other projects, what we also had where we did labeling for. Um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis where you would label the, the hand images and there you for the labeling you say how much the the bones and the fingers for example are eroded by the disease and oh, okay. we had like continuous labeling by um, sometimes by students sometimes by doctors and we would always compare sometimes so sometimes give the student the same images they already Labeled, but at, at some later point, so you could uh, measure things like um, inter-rater uh, like reliability. So because sometimes you see the same images but would give a different rating, and so then you you have at least so this is one one thing you can do that you give the same the same items again to the same labeler. Obviously not uh, like directly after, but maybe a few days later or so. Or, a few months later, depending on your project, and just to see how much they, they agree with themselves, so, and also the how much two raters agree between each other. Then you just get a feeling for how difficult it is, or maybe you can see, or if, like the best, the best for you is if you have multiple labelers, so you can compare them and, and see how consistent they are but obviously it's expensive to do this. Uh, like the more you do it, the more you have to pay people, of course. And if you, instead of labeling your data once, you do it, I don't know, three times, then of of course it's, it's three times as costly maybe. So yeah, but I think you should at least have a little, little bit of these like overlaps or have two people label the same data. So you just are not blind to the quality of your data, because it's easy to just, if, if it's a numbers, like it's in uh, some Excel sheet CSV or, or database, it's just the numbers and they look like they are right because they're, I mean, they're just binary coded <laughs> numbers and they look so clean and, and perfect, but you always have to look at the process and and m- maybe they are not as close to the ground truth as you want it to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes yes indeed oh that's that's yeah good good tips thank you and uh was it after that that you decided to do your your phd
1: um uh, yeah kind of uh so I, I, during the job i would say because i worked uh, part-time only so i think in the beginning 80 percent, later 60 percent, meaning i had first one day off and later two days off um which like since this was from the beginning, so when when we negotiated the contract, and I took this as an opportunity to have first uh, one day of learning new stuff. Uh, I started with Mm -hmm. learning about, I think I took a deep learning course in the beginning, and also later did uh, some deep learning projects. Um, But then I came into reading papers for interpretable machine learning So I started with the line paper, which is about building local models to approximate your complex machine learning model and for explaining individual predictions. And then I wanted to learn more and I didn't find any good resource on it. So I I was hoping for maybe I will find a book or a a good blog post or whatever, Uh, but it turned out I didn't find anything. So I started collecting these things like these papers and, and writing about them and which later turned out to be the book. And yeah, then I uh, used like this R package book down which lets you build a um, ebook but also a website. So I started writing it down like all what I learned and during my like 20% free time. Um, and then so also my, my girlfriend finished her, uh, her PhD so i already had to start thinking about what i want to do after after she finished yeah. whether we want to stay go someplace else and the two options were at this point were for me maybe uh, freelancing or doing a phd and since i was already writing the book i thought yeah it might make sense to do a phd because it's yeah very close already to like uh, reading the paper writing stuff down and and i enjoyed it at this point So this was my decision then to do a PhD.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to, to get into it. Um, Yeah. Starting with, with a 20% time following your curiosity. And then coming to the realization to say like, this is an area that's, there's not much out there.
1: Mm -hmm. I might
0: as well dive, dive into it. Um, That's, yeah that's that's excellent and then and um so tell me about the the process of of putting the the book together
1: mm-hmm. so it started with a few chapters that i wrote with and where I already uh, were still kept the the repository where i wrote it in private at some point i thought I always planned to also publish it so others could use it and at some point i had i don't know five chapters or so and I decided, and I also had the, the GitHub on, on GitHub pages. I, I, I published the website and I just put it out on Twitter. Hey, I'm I, uh, writing a, like a small book about uh, interpretable machine learning. Here's the like my my first release, my in progress version. And I got really great feedback that people liked it already, which motiv- motivated me a lot to continue writing the chapters. So, which is, uh, I think, very different from how books are written traditionally or you just yes. start writing and then you have some internal reviewers who would give you feedback. And in the end you have a finished product and then you re- release it. And for, for, for this book, I, I started small, already released something which was far away from perfect. Um, but it's what it was already useful to some people. So this motivated me to keep going and I, continued chapter after chapter and after each chapter I would publish it and uh, announce on Twitter, hey, I wrote a new chapter, you can have a look. And I always got feedback and um, people, uh, some people um, fixed like typos on GitHub, which was really unexpected for me, but like one benefit of having everything open so people also can clone the whole project of my whole book and play around with with the code and stuff so this is also, I guess, very uh, different from traditional publishing. And very. yeah, <laughs> at some point I put it on Leanpub. So the uh, so now at, at this point, then I had uh, my webpage and then the in-progress version on Leanpub because Leanpub is a like a bookstore, but also a publishing tool where you can publish in-progress books. So and, and you have like a slider where you can say how much percentage of the book is done. And I put like, I don't know, 30% in the beginning and pushed it a little further each time. At some point I said, okay, now it's 100%. And some time later, I also published a print version. So now there are kind of free versions of the book, um, but I'm still continuing continue writing the book. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. And what, yeah. what were the original five chapters?
1: Um, I think so, one of the first chapters was LIME, so for the, uh, mm-hmm. in, explaining individual predictions. Um, then, I'm not so sure, but I think uh, partial dependence plot was also one of the first chapters. This is a model agnostic technique, meaning you can apply it to neural networks, but also to, li- uh, well, it doesn't make sense with linear models, but with like, trees or random forests, whatever. And it will show, it will show you the, kind of average effect one of your input features has on the prediction. And I think like uh, feature importance was also one of the earlier chapters, which gives you a ranking, how important each of the features was for the predictive power of your model. And the rough idea behind it is that you shuffle one of the features, which destroys the information it has and then you do the predictions again and observe how much the, the for example, the accuracy drops. And then this is kind of your importance value. Yeah, these were the, the early chapters. Also the, the focus of the book is more on model agnostic methods. So methods that you yes. can apply to any model. Um, Because I yeah wanted to start with those. I think those are very useful because they are more timeless than the other um, the other methods that rely on a certain method. Because for example, if you have a method that only works for XGBoost, then, which is very popular at the moment, but maybe it's not, maybe in five years there's a different method that's very popular, then uh, it's, then you need another method or, uh, for doing the interpretations, but not with model agnostic methods. But that said, um, I now add, I'm now adding a bit uh, of these model-specific uh, methods as well. So for I started now for deep learning to, to add a few more chapters specific for deep learning models.
0: Excellent, that's great. And why why do you think it it was? Because obviously the the book has been really popular uh, I've, I've i know but like personally I know that I've, I've it's come up in in conversations quite a few times uh, people know about it people are talking about it uh, people are asking about a resource like this. Why do you think it was um, so timely like why why is interpretable machine learning uh, needed now
1: good question um so, yeah, one, one thing was obviously that there wasn't much material out there. So I had the early, so being early, the, the bonus of being early for the book. Um, well, then I think also that, I mean, there's this hype of um, deep or machine learning, or especially deep learning since uh, 2012, which I always found a bit funny because, uh, well, machine learning already worked before that obviously not as well for images and text, but for like the, these more classical settings or business type settings where you have, uh, I don't know, an Excel sheet or so, you always could apply Random Forest and, and well before 2012. But I think this, this hype of deep learning also pushed um, other types of like the uh, um, quote unquote uh, traditional machine learning further. And more people are trying it out and what I often observe is that people try it out and then like, oh, we don't understand the model. What, what does it do? And so mm-hmm. often it naturally arises the question, like how can we do some interpretation? Are there any methods where we can learn what the, or understand what the model does? So I think there's this need to explain or this yeah, desire to explain what the models does, which often comes from the data scientists themselves. So for just some doing some debugging so for example, when I did uh, Kaggle competitions, uh, well, so while well back like six or seven years, I wasn't too successful, but uh, I, I, one of my favorite algorithms was random forest and, and one of the reasons being because you get like a feature importance ranking out of it because I was always interested in learning a bit more about the problem, not only having a black box that works well, but understanding what were the most important features that for predicting the outcome. So yeah, I think that's, that's a source of interest for for this topic and yeah the the other thing um, it's just speculation but i think like because i made the book so open and for free so so the, the, you can always visit the web page and uh, the ebook you can pay for it but you don't have to so this mm, probably helped to at least push push the book more than yeah if i wouldn't have it open
0: yes yeah definitely and do you think that most most data scientists are learning interpretability in their um in the courses that they're doing whether online or or university do you think that this this topic is covered usually and um and if so how well
1: The courses I had didn't cover it much. So, uh, of course, for the Random Forest chapter that I learned in my machine learning course at university, there was this, like a few slides on the feature importance, but I I don't recall really learning about these techniques. And also, I I took a few online courses at Coursera uh, where I didn't stumble upon any of the interpretation methods so I think also in in the courses there might still be, be a gap which is now probably filling slowly um but yeah so we for example the at our university now um my professor is now adding also a lecture on interpretable machine learning
0: great 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 and um and uh, yeah um I share. Um, your your passion for random forest and um, and and for the same reason, I found that I could get so much information mm-hmm. out of out of the random forest and obviously yeah feature importance uh,
1: yeah.
0: being one of them. Um, there's also the the local feature importance that it gives it you at a at a, mm-hmm. a row level um, and and there's obviously interesting things that you can do with the proximity matrix. Um, yeah, it's not it's
1: not one thing I learned the hard way is that you shouldn't fall too much in love with one of the, well, with one your favorite algorithms, because I, I, I in Kaggle com- <laughs> oh competitions, God. I always used random forests, and there was this one competition, I think it was about detecting dark matter, so there was simulated data and from, like, images uh, of, uh, like, um, galaxies, and if you have some dark matter, then the, the, the uh, image of the galaxy behind the dark matter would be a bit distorted. It's like a way for detecting dark matter. And I obviously, because I was too much in love with <laughs> random forests, I applied random forests and they performed really poorly. Um, but I teamed up with someone else who had a completely different approach, and then I think we had a ten, ended up in the top 10 percent. But it was not thanks to <laughs> not thanks to me um yeah so this is also a trap you can fall into just like apply your hammer to any any problem but uh yes. not not see <laughs> the range of solutions that you should look at
0: very wise words uh, so so true so true and um yeah so so true i i did a a quick poll um and at work around I picked one of the one of the topics in in your book so under the the model agnostic methods uh one of the ones you mentioned before is the partial dependence plots mm-hmm. and um at work I were having lunch with a data scientist and I asked them. I said oh how do you how do you guys know about partial dependency plots and um none of them knew <laughs> I was okay. like oh yeah there's there's um It's, this is, and and obviously it's, it's a, it's one of the interpretable methods that has been around for some time, is
1: that right? Yeah, it's quite old, I think, Uh, not sure about the date, but yeah, one of the oldest before the uh, machine learning hype, yeah.
0: Correct, yeah, which is, which is why I picked it. I thought it was one of the, one of the older ones and I was surprised, but but then when we started to talk about interpretability, they were so so eager to learn. Um mm-hmm. so I was like anyway, I've obviously pointed them directly at your book and they're right. they're all enjoying it, enjoying it now. Right. Um which is which is really good. And um can you can if and looking at, at the same or in the same model agnostic uh methods, can you um, can you tell us about the accumulated local effects plots?
1: Mm-hmm. So I'll start with the partial dependence plot because then it's uh, it's easier to transition to the accumulated local effects. So partial dependence plot, I, the idea is actually quite yeah simple, I would say. Um, because you so the goal is to analyze how one feature changes a prediction. Obviously, your model depends on all of the features, so you have to like remove the effect of the other features and the or or, or condense only the fact of one of the features so the idea of partial dependence plot is that you you pick one of your features then you um, define a grid over the feature so from minimum to maximum maybe i don't know 20 like 20 values of that feature and then you take each of the values and um like overwrite in your data set all for for this particular feature you start like putting the minimum value of that feature in and just check how what the model predicts then. So it's kind of you force all of your data points to have the same value. And this you do for all of the grid values and, and observe like how on average the prediction changes. Uh, this method, so that's see, the main idea behind partial dependence plot. But this um, has one challenge or one problem that's when features are correlated. So if you have two features, let's say the the height of a person and the weight, they obviously strongly correlated. And then you, I don't know, you have like a two meter person in your data set and you want to look at the effect of the weight on whatever it is you want to predict. And then you start with a weight, I don't know, with 50 kilogram, and then you insert this 50 kilogram into each data point But you also do this for the the two meter person, which is an unrealistic data point, but you use it to to create this plot. So you you create new points which are unrealistic and use this to describe what your model does, but but that's a point that's not interesting to you. So then this can bias your plots and you also don't know in which way it will bias because this is an area where you now make a prediction with the model. But the model has never seen data for for this type of person or this type of data, which might even be like physically impossible. So it's not clear what your model will do in this area. So and accumulated local effect plots try to solve this issue of um, using unrealistic data points. so that so accumulated local effects or in short ale also work for correlated features. And the idea is that you, you also cut your features, like so let's again look at the weight, for example. You cut the weight into intervals, and in each interval you slightly shift the data points to the left of the interval and to the right and just observe in this small interval how the prediction will change. And then you can from this construct a, a plot which tells you the feature effect. And by this you achieve both that you isolate the effect um, from this single feature, but also because you only do like a local um, changes or local manipulation of the feature. So you can, you don't have this extrapolation issue like partially dependence plots have. So I, I would highly recommend using this if you have correlated features, which you often have.
0: And the heat, yes, that is, that's excellent that's excellent and um, I also would like to ask you about the the example based uh, explanations mm-hmm. um, can you can you tell us a little bit about about those
1: yeah so this was a uh, it could have also you could also take this whole chapter or these, these chapters under example based and move them to model agnostic explanations because they're basically also model agnostic explanations, but the outcome, or, or why I made gave them a, their own section is because the, the result is not like a plot or a number, but a, a data point. Um, so for example, for if you look at influential instances, um, which tell you how much a data point influenced a certain prediction, so this is like looking back to the, really to the training of the model, then the um, or, or, or it's actually the other way around. You have a prediction and you want to have that, a ranking of the t- top 10 data points that influence the prediction for this data point to see like, um, what, what, what is your model basing the prediction on? And then you get back, um, as a result, these data points. And so this, this makes this, these types of method a bit different from the, like the the ones where you get like just a importance number or a effect plot. And also this gives you a few more challenges because if you have like a few thousand um, features, then you have to find a way to visualize them or just report them in a way that makes sense or you can actually look through to get an understanding.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, that's really good. And what, what, are, what are some of the packages that are available for people to, to do interpretable ML
1: with? Yeah, so in, in R, I, I, well, I have to advertise my own package, of course, <laughs> no, I, in R I wrote, wrote a package uh, called IML, which implements a few of the model agnostic chapters, uh, methods, then for line, for example, there's an R implementation and also Python implementation um then there's a lot of packages that also implement like the, some individual methods. For example, there's a package for plots, um, which, or for ale, these uh, effect plots, which is called AL plot in R. I don't think there's a Python implementation of it. Then there are other bigger projects that implement like a lot of functions. For example, Dalek, which is also an R package, covers a lot of uh, different methods in Python, you have the skater package, uh, the the Eli Five package, yeah. So there's it's just beginning, I would say, but uh, there's already um, already packages you can try out.
0: Awesome, that's that's great. And um, and tell me tell me about the interpretability. In in deep learning, what what are you what are you finding there, or what are, what are the some of the recent uh, developments? Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, first we have to we have to talk like what what makes deep learning different. Um, yes. So first of all, of course, the model agnostic methods you can apply uh, at least if you use deep learning for like the traditional or let's say like more these Excel type of data. Um Which often doesn't make sense because uh, you have good performance of random forest or boosting. So one one difference is that you use deep learning mostly for data with like uh, some spatial structure like images or text and word met- like neighboring pixel matter and neighboring words matter. And so this this is one reason that the the methods are a bit different from the other methods. And the other reason is that you usually have a gradient you can work with so you can have more um, efficient methods and because you can can use that gradient and all all the architectures architectures usually give you the gradient. So that being said, um, what can you do? And well, one, one thing you can do is try to understand what the neural network does or how it works on the inside. And these are the images a lot of people might already have seen these uh, feature visualizations where you try to find the input that maximizes the activation of a certain unit of the network, for example, of a neuron, or maybe a whole convolutional layer or so. So these are like these, which look like hallucinations where you might then kind of try to interpret what, what you see on the image, which might be like, a I don't know, a dog snout or Uh, a daisy or whatever. So this is one way of trying to understand what the network does. Other techniques try to, which I would call like feature attribution, they try to explain individual predictions. It's like like saliency maps. There are like dozens of different uh, algorithms to, to do this. Some work with the gradient, some with occlusion. And for each there are many, many different flavors and they all give you this. So you have some, maybe some input image and then you want to highlight the parts the network is looking at for doing the prediction. Maybe it's some image and you get a prediction that it's a dog and you want to know which parts of the image uh, contributed to the dog prediction or dog classification. Yeah, that's also a chapter I'm still still working on but there's so many different methods. It's really you're really drowning in in, in papers that, that have slightly different methods for for the same thing. Yeah, and then wow. there, which also goes more in the direction of feature visualizations. These are techniques that try to um, learn about more the concepts or examine the concept that the neural networks learned. Um, oh, I forgot the name the like that um, concept activation vectors. For example, there's a paper about that where you can provide some data and, and learn like whether the neural network used certain, a certain concept. This could be like, I don't know, gender or whether, uh, or, and it's, or it's a simpler concept like the stripes, uh, whether it relied on detecting some stripes um, or so for a certain prediction.
0: that is awesome that is awesome and and what what is your what is your process to go through the the literature literature and then uh, and then put it into into shape to to then Mm -hmm. feed it into the book
1: i think one of the first struggles is always like on on which level do i do the aggregation so, do I lump all of the methods together and just give an overview? How deep do I dive into a single methods, or do I just like w- w- aggregate all of the, for example, a feature attribution? I could like to pick uh, two methods and describe those in detail, or I could have one chapter where I try to describe all of them and put them in a like a common framework or so. So, this is one of the first difficult things to do, I would say. And yeah. to come up with that, I well, I. Like, kind of randomly read a lot of papers, a lot of blog posts, and during reading, I just dump a lot of notes in, into the, the markdown file I'm writing, and then try to structure the, the knowledge for me a bit. Um, what also helps a lot is just getting away from from the research, from the papers, uh, and going out for a walk, and just thinking about, like, how would I structure this, or what, um, how do the pieces, like, fit together, should this be an own? It's, should one method have its own chapter, or do I build more of an overview? So this is, uh, yeah. I also like to like stretch this process a bit so that I have more time to think about it. And if I still like the idea a week later, then it's probably then I'm happy with the structure. So it's uh, going back and forth, like reading, uh, trying to think of like. Putting pieces together in my head and then reading again a bit more.
0: That's uh, that's a really good rule that you just mentioned around. If you make a decision and then a week later you're still happy with it, mm-hmm. it's it's a good it's a good way to to make sure that that's that that's going to stick. That's excellent. Um, another thing that I really enjoyed in your book, which might be a a bit of a random one. Um, was the the images the drawings? Okay. Um, yeah, I thought I thought they were so clear, so great, so friendly. Um, how how did those come come about?
1: What which, which ones? Uh, oh, for example, like uh,
0: like the images of of the the big picture, for example. There's oh, there's yeah. one where you had the different layers from the world. I remember to like data. <laughs> um, black book's model, the interpretability methods, and then how that feeds humans.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I think it's easier to communicate with like images that, and I, I don't know, I don't want to. like. I'm not I'm not good at building those with, I don't know, Photoshop or anything, so I just hand draw them even if I'm not like I'm really good at it, but I think it doesn't matter too much, so I can express much more what I want to express when I just draw it sometimes. And yeah, and also it's very enjoyable to to just like draw it and publish it even if it's not perfect, but well, at least you like it. (laughs) So that's a good thing. I do, um, I I really do. (laughs) Yeah, and it helps me a lot to explain things in a, a simple drawing. Yeah, I also started doing this for presentations because you always get this clean, like bullet point presentations, but sometimes it's just uh, like a badly drawn comic is sometimes worth a thousand times you, the bullet points. Um, oh, and yes. so I st- started like doing this a lot more. Also got uh, got an iPad um, for, for drawing, which is probably a bit overpowered, but uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: yeah. I actually, um i didn't expect you to say that you that you do the drawings yourself i think that's fantastic
1: (laughs) yeah only the cover i didn't draw That was a good friend of mine um yeah but yeah for for these like small not sure what to call them like these comics or infographics whatever um yeah those i draw myself
0: awesome well done that's great and how's how's the phd going
1: yeah so I'm now one year and a half and a bit more in um yeah always difficult to say i guess <laughs> so the first year i am um, focused mainly on doing some this kind of consolidation by writing the book by writing the the r package and now i'm in the phase where i kind of have to find my own research topics so yeah still an ongoing process to see like what i want to specialize in and yeah and also, yeah, a bit hard for me because I like more this overview type of work. Yes. Um, so like writing the book and uh, doing chapters on very different methods. I mean, obviously it's still in the, the niche of uh, interpretable machine learning. Yeah, but if you do research then you have to dive deep into something. And yeah, so I'm still working on this to to find my own research direction. But yeah, Do you have that's any fun. inklings? So I uh, submitted a paper for for workshop, um, which is about measuring the complexity of a model. So this, these measures that we proposed are about uh, measuring how, for example, how much interactions between features the the model uh, works with. So for example, a linear model would have zero interactions. Uh, but, but like as models like a random forest can cover quite a lot of int- or a lot of the prediction function or, or the variance of the prediction function with um, with interactions between the features, which makes the interpretation a lot harder. Because then if you plot something like a partial dependence plot or also accumulated local effect plot, then because these are always averages, and the more interactions you have, the, the wilder the individual curves would be. So the, these these measures help you kind of to decide also how good the, these post hoc interpretation methods uh, will work on your model. So this is one direction we are kind of looking in into.
0: Very good, very good. Have you uh, done any any other papers around other other possible directions? Um,
1: well, no. So. Not as um, my main projects, but um, I work with with, um, other researchers from from our group. And one paper we have is, for example, on uh, feature importance, especially on individual feature importance, where you not, because feature importance values are also aggregate, like mean aggregations of all of your uh, data points, but you can also look at the feature importance for individual data points, for example or aggregations or like subgroups of them so this uh, was a paper about that uh, which was at ECML so European conference for machine learning last year yeah
0: awesome that's great that's really great and tell me what what um well sort of a, a high a high level or maybe overview question um what excites you most about the the future of interpretability? Where um, where do you see this going?
1: Yeah, so it's still a young field. It's getting crowded, I would say. So lots and lots of papers. And a big, I think, going from here is now doing, still this kind of consolidation work where you, where you try to, do, to see which methods emerge as, like a good status quo or good like first methods to use. For example, should you use partial dependence plot or should you use ale plots or what, or to better understand what are the problems with each of the methods. So I think one direction we should be going is to really analyze or better understand the methods to to get, yeah, to solidify them or to better understand their weaknesses and to have like a tool set that you can actually recommend. So these and these methods are really good. And and in this situation, you can use this method. You should be careful with this method only in certain scenarios you can use them. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. Um, yeah, one issue is obviously that we have also a lot, of, a lot of new methods coming up and you always have to decide is this now, uh, how new is it really? And so like, how does it fit in with the already existing methods? Yeah.
0: Very true, very very true. And what what would you like to do, or what do you see yourself doing after the PhD?
1: Um, that's a good question. But I, well, my current plans are to, to start something of my own, like doing like a consulting business, on which I already started uh, already a bit on the side of my PhD, but doing consulting on, on interpretable machine learning also a bit broader about like what what can go wrong if you use machine learning um so like these best practices around machine learning so yeah that's that's my current plan it's it's my plan since a year so it's a uh, i guess a good plan or at least i'm still happy with it
0: yeah exactly i like i like that rule as i said before um that's really good and and do you see that taking form as a as a consulting company or as a as a product um, mm-hmm. as 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 advisory, uh, how um, do you have any any early indications?
1: Um, yeah, so my plans are currently like just like a starting out of just me, just a one person consultancy. So or more like or advising people or companies uh, on on the topic. Yeah, I don't. Well, the product would also be nice, but I don't have anything currently in, in my mind. So probably more the consulting direction.
0: Yeah. No, that sounds that sounds extremely extremely interesting. Um. Yeah. Really, really, really good. Really good. And how do you? This is just uh, out of out of curiosity, but how do you? Um. Structure your. Your days and, and and your weeks, as in, how do you maximize the impact of your time? You seem you you seem so productive. Um, <laughs> how? Uh, and and you know, like sometimes the, the most productive people they don't feel like they're productive because they feel like they're taking what could be seen as long breaks, but it's actually long thinking time. So it's always sort of like a I don't know a tough a tough question for people that are are really productive, but um, because you seem like one of those people, uh, how, how do you structure your, your weeks and, and mm-hmm. days and yeah. months?
1: So, yeah, some, sometimes I also don't feel very productive and, um, yeah, but I, I guess it's also okay because only doing things is sometimes also, it's like the difference between being busy and productive. So I, I think it's good to have also some thinking periods. So now more concretely, how I'm structure my days and, and weeks, um, I have like a to-do list on Trello. I don't know if you know Trello, is like this board-like or yes. Kanban board-like um, tool. Um, I used it more, much more a few years back and now I just use it a little bit um, where I just capture some to-dos that I have to do. I also have like a list of my projects where I look at once a week, so just to just to know to keep them going and that to, to to write down to do is if I um, have to do something to to keep them moving. Um, yeah, I try to do not do too much. So in the sense that I don't try to not get get involved in too many projects, so that I have more time for for the projects I want to work on, for example the book um, or my my research. Um, so I guess a big thing in my tool set is also saying no to a lot of things. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: And how, how do you pick uh, which, which things to get involved with and which ones to say no?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, I guess, yeah, for example, for, um, so I, I do a bit of teaching and also supervising master thesis, for example, and one filter for me is I, I only supervise topics that have something to do with interpretable machine learning. Um, yeah, since so, since I'm like focusing a lot on on this topic, so this is a good filter. So does it help me with this goal, like learning more about interpretability? Um, that, that's a good filter for me to say whether I work on this or not. And also, I just check against my current commitments if if it makes sense to to do another commitment. Uh, and then often the answer is no. That I already have too much on my plate. I mean, there's also this danger of like just doing this one thing and um, well, not growing in other areas. Or sometimes it can be useful to do something completely different. So yeah, so I'm still trying to figure out how to um, how to in- incorporate this like little probability of doing something completely different or, or working on a different project. But currently, I'm still quite focused on the credibility,
0: and I think that there's many, many, many people out there that are extremely glad and very <laughs> thankful that you're that you are focused on it. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much for for the book and for all the good work that you're doing. It's it's something that's so necessary. Where I I, I personally see. Um, see your work and the work in this space as the way that the the machines teach us back, essentially Mm -hmm. tell us back about the the findings instead of us sort of blindly automating uh, things. Obviously, blindly is a bit of an exaggeration uh, to make the point, but we can, uh, as data scientists, I think we can very easily Fall into the trap of following the the steps of you know cleaning, preparing the data, creating the model, um, productionizing, building an API for it, and then getting it out, and that automates the decision. Mm-hmm. But but we 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 could have learned so much better by applying the interoperability um, uh, approaches that like the ones that you described in your book and the ones that you're mm-hmm. working on, and that's the way that we. That we get knowledge from from the machines back uh, into us, and and we we learn and get better from it. So, mm. so thank you, thank you so <laughs> much for for the work the work that you do. <laughs> is is there is there anything that um that you would like me to to ask you that I haven't asked you yet?
1: Um. I can't think of anything now.
0: That is, um, no, that's good. So we will wrap it up there. Christoph, it has been an absolute, absolute blast. A pleasure uh, getting to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so, so much for the good work that you do. Uh, obviously, um, my staff, and many many people out there are huge fans and we we thank you uh for for your contribution to to this very necessary uh field uh that we need bright yeah. people like yourself doing this good work so yeah. thank you so much for that
1: thanks for the invitation i enjoyed our conversation
0: it was absolutely brilliant let me let me stop the recording here